Gronishoga. Unsha. The nation's sweetheart. How are you? <laughs> I'm very, very well, Philip. <laughs> You're so sarcastic. <laughs> How often mm. in your childhood have you been told, oh, there must have been a randy Spanish armada sailor somewhere in your family tree? I pretty much have. It is known. accepted wisdom that everybody in the west of Ireland with dark hair and skin and brown eyes must be descended from one of the sailors of the Spanish Armada. Positive that these guys did make it ashore and had a great time for themselves when they when they landed in Connemara. Well, frankly, with your big Bambi brown eyes <laughs> and your sallow complexion, fair enough, no? Yeah, I mean, I'd heard it all my life. This And there is an awful lot of logic to it. Gronia has a picture of herself when she started in school. On the evidence of your eyes alone... There is no way that the little girl in the photo is Irish. I think I must have been four. Oh, my God. <laughs> Maria Luisa from Toledo. Hello. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I would have been very, very, what we call an Irish bui, yellow-skinned as a child, and the hair is very, very dark. The only problem is that by 1596, eight years after the Armada, there were only eight Spanish sailors left on an entire island of two million people. Think about how busy they would have had to have been. <laughs> they wouldn't have been doing any soldiering or sailoring, would they? No. They would have literally opened a, like a stud in Kildare. <laughs> the Spanish look to some Galway and Clare people is in fact thousands of years older than the Spanish Armada. The relatively isolated inhabitants of the west of Ireland never got the opportunity to intermarry with successive waves of Viking, Norman or planter migration. And though she has known this for years, the dutiful daughter of a tourism-reliant B&B owner wouldn't dream of correcting the myth. It is. It is all rubbish, but it's a lovely story and we do love a story. The moral of the story? Forget everything that you thought you knew about the Spanish Armada. Most of it is wrong, and nearly everything that I thought that I knew about the Falcon Blanco was completely incorrect. In 1588, 26 ships of the Spanish Armada sank off the Irish coast. Only six have ever been found. This is Treasure Island, the hunt for the Falcon Blanco. So we're quite happy in our mind that we have found the wreck of the Falcon Blanca. It was very easy to see. There's nothing here. I think they found something, but then they got all secretive. <laughs> Episode 3. Trust nothing. How did, you, how did you find me in Celtic shipping? There's only two Simon Avises in South Africa and you, oh, yeah, well, you weren't that hard to track down. I didn't know there were two of us. There was no beating about the bush with Simon Avis. As you heard in the last episode, from the moment that I tracked him down in South Africa, he was absolutely sure that Colum's dive team deliberately hid something significant from him. Tell me what you were saying to me earlier on. Just start again from the beginning. I think they found something, but then they got all secretive. Oh, really? OK. So, so they didn't tell you? No. I don't think they told anyone, you see. That's the, that's the point. 
Simon was 20 years old and holidaying on Inishbofin with his guardian when the Falcon Blanco dive team landed on the island on civil servant Mellis Clune's instructions. The way Simon tells the story is that without him, the dive team wouldn't have had the first notion where to begin looking. The guys, it was in Day's bar that I got approached. Would, 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 I, would, I, would I take the guys round to the, the wreck? Um, and did I know where it was, which I obviously didn't. Let me just stop the tape here to explain that that sound of metal on metal, which I first thought was Simon taking a gun apart, is actually him fidgeting with an old Zippo lighter. Um, I did in those days have a chart, with, which I used to keep with me all the time, which was noting down everything I was, was told, if that makes sense, from all the islanders, because I was aware they were all dying off. OK, that showed a lot of foresight for a young lad. Yeah, I know, but I, I did history university so I was aware of the rarity of some of these things and so I would have then gone to uh, Pack and Cannon who was the one of the Klingon disaster survivors and basically was in charge of all marine knowledge on Boffin and um, he would have given me the marks I'd have put them down in my chart I knew in those days how to do you know rever- get reverse sightings along a compass And I went to where they were, and the guys jumped. As I said before, they were columnist guys were terribly secretive about what they were doing, um, which they wouldn't even tell me, which probably irritated me slightly. Are you sure about that now? Are you sure that they weren't just hiding their disappointment rather than actually keeping some piece of information from you? I don't know how old, how old was I at the time, 20. I wouldn't have, oh, so 21. I wasn't that experienced at judging people, but I remember complaining about how they wouldn't share information. And what sort of information were you looking for? Did you find it? <laughs> the obvious question. Frankly, I didn't know what to make of all of this. Simon's recall was pretty assured the episode had stuck well in his memory, but I couldn't square what Simon Avis said about the secrecy of the divers then with Colm O'Brien's transparency now. Were they hiding something, which seemed implausible, or had they forgotten about the Spanish galleon they had discovered, which seemed even more unlikely? He lives full time, I think, out in Spain, doesn't he? Yeah, he, he lives he... half his time in Spain. Half. Yeah, he's still got the driving place over in the West. Oh, yeah, but well, that son's on that anyway. Sure, Maybe he owns it. It was time to get the 1969 dive team together again in the same room and confront them with Simon Avis's allegation. Once again, though, memories were a bit muddled. Simon Avis. Simon Avis. Yeah. I have Simon Hertz. Yeah. <laughs> Simon Hertz, that's that very good. His yeah. father, I think, owned Hertz. Avis, maybe. Avis, yeah, Simon yeah. Avis. So I told them Simon Avis's version of events just as he had told it to me. And then I played them a little bit of his interview from my phone. I think they found something, but then they got all secretive. Oh, really? Okay. So, so they didn't tell you? As they listened, they seemed quite taken aback. When the clip finished, the atmosphere in the room had changed completely. And do it without me asking a few questions. And maybe I asked too many. I don't know. Silence. 
There's, he's completely not, wrong in his memory of that. What could we have been seeking yeah. about? <laughs> Nothing. We didn't. We hadn't found anything. You oh. found an anchor. Ah, yes, but that to us at that stage was discussed in the bar afterwards. Where so hang on a, a second. Are you telling me that you have gone there to look for a Spanish galleon, you, John Hills, come out of the water having seen an anchor and you don't tell anybody when you get into the boat? I can't remember. Yes. That's the answer. But normally, we just after you get back up and board in those days, you know, you arrive back and you say, "Thank God, I've made it back." You know, literally. I mean, it's, um, it's yeah. as simple as that. Maybe I'm a more giddy kind of person, but I'm telling you now, if it was me, the first thing I would be doing when my head popped up out of the water and I took the regulator out of my mouth would be to say, "Bloody hell, lads! You know what I found?" Well, you probably did. We probably did. Yeah, and Simon well, not Mike, according to Simon Avis. He said that you all got really secretive and hugger-mugger. We weren't hiding anything from Simon Avis, I can guarantee no. that. We were probably exhausted, very wet, very cold, and had a long trip back in an open pukon with a little outboard on the back of it, chugging back into Inish Bavan Island. So we wouldn't have been altogether cracking jokes on the way home, I can tell you that. We talked for over an hour, but ultimately there was no reconciling how they remembered what had happened with Simon Avis's version of events. Memories are brittle. I needed to concentrate on what was tangible, and I had three solid leads to pursue. The cannonball, the anchor, and the ballast rock. Colm O'Brien claimed that he had passed the little ballast stone onto a man called Tom Shakespeare for geological analysis, and the results of that were that the stone he had picked up off the seabed was potentially Spanish in origin. Unfortunately, Tom Shakespeare had died five years ago. Fortunately, though, he had left a treasure trove of personal archives behind him. Dad was quite meticulous about his record keeping. So I have a folder that's called British Museums in relation to a recent record of a crawfish from Dawkey County, Dublin, that Dad would have lifted and sent to the British Museum for assessment. Tom's daughter is called Anna Shakespeare, a name that once you've heard for the first time, it's difficult not to keep on repeating to yourself. Anyway, Anna had scoured everything that remained in her father's archive for me. Um, Historic wrecks exhibition, the sailing ship, the tailor, which he would have dived off uh, Lambay in 1959. Um, There's another file called The Odd, um, which is, it's all fascinating stuff. And then the final piece I have... You're going to tell me that you found a piece of paper that says Columns Rock is Spanish. No, I, I, I haven't, and I've rooted through everything, Philip. Nothing. This meticulous documenter of all of his scuba-related interests had kept nothing about the alleged proof of discovery of a Spanish Armada wreck. Wouldn't that be precisely the kind of thing that you would keep if you were the kind of person who also kept records of crayfish that they had found? But as we talked about Anna's memories of her dad, something else came out. When he had died five years ago and they had cleaned out what had been the family home, among the things that they had thrown into a skip had been... Pumice, lumps of pumice around the house, um, which I sadly didn't realise what it was and um, probably skipped it, um, which is a heresy, I know, uh, but I thought it was something from the bathroom, you know, that it made, managed to make its way down to the living room when, when their house was... Um, when we closed the family home and sold it a couple of years ago. It wasn't just pumice. 
Anna's brother recalled it in a slightly different way. Uh, so David remembers it, my brother remembers it and remembered it as the ballast rock from the, um, from the boats. Mixed in among the pumice had been some small rocks, obviously of enough significance that Tom Shakespeare had held on to them. But whatever that significance was, he had taken with him to the grave. Then there was the anchor in Paddy O'Halloran's back garden. Colin Martin, the underwater archaeologist and my Spanish Armada anchor expert, the discoverer of three Armada wrecks himself, had given me his first impression over the phone. But I wanted him to see the pictures and detailed measurements that I had taken. It's certainly got many of the characteristics uh, that we saw in the, the more certainly identified Armada anchors. Is it dissimilar in any way? Is it different? It's, it's smaller, but that, that, that isn't, isn't a, a negative factor necessarily because uh, ships were themselves of different sizes and, and ships would have different sizes of anchor for different purposes. The biggest anchor would be the one that they threw out in, as, as the last resort. The um, Falcon Blanco was 300 tonnes. I think the Trinidad Valencia was 1,100 tonnes. Yeah. Yes, well, I, I, I may be going to disappoint you. I can see nothing that, that, that disqualifies uh, this from being a, a Spanish Armada anchor. Why would you think that would disappoint me? Of course, it would be lovely if it's a Spanish Armada anchor in Spanish written all over it. Uh, but, but the point I'm going to make is that this type of anchor, this type of iron anchor, um, was common for much of the age of sail. Um, it would be perfectly uh, uh, attributable to, say, uh, a late 18th century uh, date. Um, it wouldn't be an awful lot earlier, I don't think, uh, than the 16th century. Uh, but I have to make that qualification because you know, a lot of ships lose anchors, not necessarily in the course of being wrecked, but just have to abandon them because they can't recover them. Uh, so there is no way that I know of that would absolutely authenticate this as being an Armada anchor. But equally, uh, I can see nothing that would say that it isn't. So the anchor could be from any ship that sailed around in Ishbofen over a 300-year time frame, and the stones that Anna Shakespeare had thrown out may have included Column's ballast rock. The cannonball was potentially much more decisive. In the Spanish archives in Madrid, I had asked an Irish researcher to go rooting through the drawers and drawers of old scrolls and documents relating to the Armada. Kieran Oski had managed to retrieve an inventory of all of the guns on board the Falcon Blanco when it set sail with the Armada in the summer of 1588. Well, one mounted Pedrero, three mounted Falconetes, one Saker, possibly a real demi-cannon. If any of those guns, Pedreros, Sakers or Demi-Cannons, was a calibre match for the cannonball sitting under Mellis Clune's son's telly in Bray, then there was going to be a reason to keep on going. But who on earth knows about the calibre of 16th century Spanish cannonballs? I think taking the cannonball and the list you gave me, I think the cannonball could well fit Saker that is in your list. Kay Smith recently retired from the Royal Armoury and a leading light of the British Royal Ordnance Society, proving once again that no matter how niche you might think a topic is, there is always somebody somewhere who has made it their life's work. 
it is around the right size for a seeker, around six pound weight, that sort of area. But of course, that there wasn't a total standard, but I would fit that seeker. What do you mean not a total standard? It is not as standards as we mean it today. Today we think of having one pound, and one pound would be the same here as in France, in Germany, in Spain, for instance. But then you could have a pound, and the pound in Spain would be different from the pound in France, the different from the pound in England. People also handmade things so that you never really got identical things. So a saker uh, might be have a bore of, say, two and a quarter inches, but they wouldn't mind if it was two and a quarter or two and three-eighths or even two and a half inches. It's not the same as today. Let me put the question to you another way then. Is there another cannon which it is more likely would have been in use by the English Navy in the west of Ireland into which this cannonball at eight centimetres and two and a half kilos in weight uh, would have gone into? No, it, it, it is around about a saker. And there was a saker on board the Falcon Blanco when it left Spain. It was looking more and more like this story was going to have to take me 30 metres under the sea off Davalon. So it was time to upskill my diving from looking at pretty fish in the warm waters of the Middle East a long time ago on holidays to something a bit more appropriate to wreck diving in the Atlantic Ocean. I was very blasé about what was involved in this until I got a rude shock on a training dive in a water-filled quarry in Tipperary. The point of the dive was to go to 30 metres and see if I suffered from nitrogen narcosis, also known as the Martini effect. At high pressure, 20 metres and deeper, the nitrogen in your tank has an anaesthetic effect on some people. So I had to go down, tie a few sailors' knots and do a simple maths test at 30 metres to prove that I wasn't prone to it. On the way down, I couldn't equalise my right ear and the pain was excruciating. I was on the point of giving up, but I went back up a few metres, blew on my nose repeatedly and sorted it out. But then my mask started filling up with blood. I had stupidly given myself a nosebleed, trying to equalise. I cleared my mask and went on with the dive without telling anyone, which I shouldn't have done. I did the narcosis test at the bottom, but one of the other divers got narked and we ended up spending longer at 30 metres than we had initially planned. The deeper you go, the quicker you use up your air, the shorter you make your dive. And I was running through my air very quickly. I started thinking about how diving wasn't for everyone. Colin Martin had read me a passage from his book about finding the Armada Galleon, the Santa Maria della Rosa, off the Blaskets in Kerry. In one passage, he was particularly dismissive of those divers who thought that they were made of the right stuff, but actually weren't up to it. Another man who claimed to have a, a phenomenal amount of diving experience actually broke down and cried when told to go over the side. 
Yet another arrived with a carefully cultivated hard man image and an exotic French girlfriend whom he had evidently intended to impress by emerging from the depths, lantern-jawed and no doubt smelling of the latest male deodorants, laden with glittering treasures. Blasket sounds soon cut him down to size, and he returned to his comfortable civilization, where men can pretend to be men without the embarrassing necessity of having to prove it. Scorn is dripping off the page for the poor oh, fellows, whoever they were. Bit, I was a bit embarrassed by that, I must admit. <laughs> but it's not for everybody. It's not. I mean, you look at it on television, you see Jacques Cousteau pottering around in the beautiful Mediterranean scene, and you think, oh, I could do that. This is a different game altogether. Yeah, we, we, we absolutely trusted each other, which we had to do. And on more than one occasion, uh, that trust was saved people's lives. Back at 30 metres from the surface of the quarry in Tipperary, a number of small things had gone wrong at the same time and my buoyancy was now out of control. I was ascending towards the surface at the rate of knots, running the risk of getting the bends. I couldn't see that the air valve on my dry suit was in the locked position. My suit was filled with air, bringing me quickly towards the surface. I decided on a crude hack and stuck my finger into the sleeve of the suit and stretched it, flooding the dry suit with water, but also letting air out. I finally managed to get my buoyancy under control and arrest my ascent just at five metres. But if I thought that I was out of the woods, I wasn't. All of that swimming around and somersaulting, getting anxious, meant that I had been gulping down my air. I looked down to see how much of it was left. Just 20 bar. Basically, none. And I still had three minutes of decompressing to do at five metres to avoid getting the bends. But I had no air to do it with. This was a training dive in controlled circumstances. No waves, no currents, good visibility, very simple task. And I had managed to run out of air. Of course, I wasn't on my own. I was never in any real danger. The dive master very calmly handed me his spare regulator and I started breathing his air for the rest of the dive while we hung out at five metres decompressing. But still, I wanted to go wreck diving in the Atlantic. On the next episode of Treasure Island, the trawl of Spanish archives turns up a document that suggests the Falcon Blanco made it back safely to Spain. In this list, they have the two Falcon Blancos as having returned to Spain. Sorry, you're telling me my ship, you're saying that the Falcon Blanco Mediano arrived back in Spain safely. Oh, I know, I mean, I mean, there's an awful lot of confusion between the documents. Treasure Island, The Hunt for the Falcon Blanco, reporting by Philip Boucher-Hayes, sound engineering for this episode by Brendan Russell. If you want to listen to the next episode now, it's available for download wherever you get your podcasts. If you know anything about this wreck, please email me at falconblanco at rte.ie and join the conversation on social media with the hashtag falconblanco. <laughs>